The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. You're watching Scorebox with uh, Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Wall Street whipsaws as the Dow reverses a 360-point loss to end the session higher as the Fed Chair Jerome Powell tries to ease concerns about higher rates and inflation. The main thing that we can do is continue to support um, the economy, give it the support that it needs. We're still 10 million uh, jobs below the level of payroll jobs before the crisis. There's still a long way to go. Bitcoin, meanwhile, briefly dipping below $50,000, but regains ground after payments firm Square buys $170 million worth of the cryptocurrency. Tesla shares plunge as much as 13% before ending the session 2% lower as the rotation out of technology accelerates, driving the stock into negative territory for the year. Elsewhere, South Korean car giant Hyundai announces the world's most expensive electric vehicle recall, affecting more than 81,000 cars, including the Kona and Ionic. And Hong Kong unveils a $15 billion budget as the economy marks a 6% decline in GDP for 2020. That's its worst annual performance since 1962. Right, morning, ladies and gentlemen. I've got to do something straight away before I even go to the reads. I've got to get something off my chest, and that is, well, what were you expecting from Jay Powell? If you sold off the market concerned about what he was going to say. Then you bought it back reassured by what he actually said. You clearly have not been watching this show. To be fair, you clearly haven't been listening to anyone because the fact is nobody expected Jay Powell to be hawkish. Nobody expected him to say anything other than what they previously said about they've got the hand of the markets, they've got the hand of the economy uh, and how he feels about jobs and inflation. But some of you clearly were. Hence, we saw that enormous round trip on the Dow and other asset classes. So let's go into what actually happened. The Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell, has played down the risks of the overheating economy, uh, telling lawmakers that inflation is still soft. Uh, a sell-off in Treasuries has uh, seen bond yields rise amid heightened inflation expectations around President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal. But Mr Powell said the pandemic has left significant imprint on inflation. Inflation dynamics do change over time, but they don't change on a dime. And so we don't really think how, see how a burst of, of, uh, of fiscal support or, or spending uh, that's not, that doesn't last for many years would actually change those inflation dynamics. I, I will also say there's uh, uh, forecasters need to be humble and have a great deal to be humble about, frankly. But so if, if we turn, if, if it does turn out that, that unwanted inflation pressures uh, arise and they're persistent, then we have the tools to deal with that and we will. As you might have heard people say on this channel once or twice, Mr. Powell added that the Fed's loose policy is set to continue amid persistent weakness in the labour market. There's a long way to go. And monetary policy is accommodative and it needs to continue to be accommodative. We've put forward guidance out both on our asset purchases and our rates. We think that that's, that forward guidance is appropriate. And we're going to, you can expect us to 
to move patiently uh, over time as we see better data coming in. You know, right now we've had three months of 29,000 jobs a month. It's, it's not very much progress. We expect that such progress, which we had earlier last year, we had very fast progress. We expect that that'll begin to return in coming months and uh, expect us to move carefully and patiently and with a lot of, of advanced warning. Uh, WJ Powell, important for some of the, the quarters of the market, in particular treasuries, areas that have been running fairly hot uh, with so-called asset bubbles that the market's been concerned around. And as Powell was talking about uh, allowing the economy to get back on its feet and uh, shrugging off some of those concerns about excess in the system, you saw selling pressure abate during the session, enough so that the Dow flipped positive by the close along with the S&P. Still some weakness in the NASDAQ, uh, but it was just worth noting some of those areas that have been the big winners on this pandemic uh, trend has been the likes of Tesla, for instance. Those big high-flying stocks were still negative by the finish, which is why you saw the Nasdaq uh, trade down. In fact, Tesla was the most negative story for the Nasdaq. But other particular names, uh, you know, Disney was a big driver for the Dow. It's a stock that's benefited around some of the streaming wars. And uh, Facebook was positive as well. So it wasn't a complete sell-off in terms of technology names. The Dow, well, this is the round course that we saw that 360-odd push down lower at the start. Uh, the market recovering across the course of the trading session. And the high ranges are very much towards the close of the trading session. Treasuries, uh, let's take a quick look at uh, where we are now perched. We've drifted off some of those high ranges of about 1.37. You can see to settle about five odd basis points uh, at one33 percent uh, below some of those higher levels. So at this stage, the market looks a little bit cooler now after what they've heard from Jay Powell. Jeff. Well, let's bring in uh, Richard Kelly on this then. Richard is uh, global head of uh, strategy at TD Securities. Very good morning to you, Richard. Let me start off with a fairly obvious question at this point then. What is your opportunity to go long again, treasuries, and where would you do that on the curve, given that Jay Powell has sent a very big signal here about the direction of rates and tapering? Well, I think, you know, we with everyone else have been short, you know, letting the long end uh, move up here. You know, I think we, we took those profits. I think looking at this now, I, I still wouldn't be going long on, on, you know, 10s and 30s at this point. You know, I think that's still an area where there is some risk, though, obviously, I think he, he's uh, Chairman Powell has managed to move back some of the the taper tantrum, a fear factor that had been moving through the market. You know what we've started to look at is, is moving closer into the short end. So I think from five and under, that's where it's probably a bit safer to start to go long, start to leg into those positions, um, and just think that's an area where the Fed can have a bit more control. And I think critically, it's also an area while everyone's talking about the real rates move, and I think it's very important and, and how that cascades across the market. What we're seeing is really a repricing in sort of the five year five year space, and and you can. Continue to see real rates at the front end of the curve, extremely anchored, extremely low. And so I think that's the area where it's probably still safe. What is your risk, though, on the short end, uh, depending on how the market reacts to the stimulus bill? I mean, we're tracking the progress of this bill very closely. We still think $1.9 trillion is on the table here. Surely that's got to have some impact at the short end as the market gets edgy about new issuance. Well, I think, I mean, at, at this point, that 1.9 trillion is fully in the price. So I think the bigger risk reward right now would be if we did not see that 1.9 trillion come through and get delivered by Congress, that would be a bigger shock. I think the issuance side has started to be priced in. Uh, we've continued to see, just given relative scarcity up there, the fact that the, on the short end side of things, you're continuing to see rates actually run a bit low. And this was something Powell was even asked about yesterday. So I think from that side of things, I'm less wary about the market having to price in 1.9. I think the next bit will be having to price in 
two, three, four trillion in terms of the infrastructure bill. And I don't think that side is priced in yet. So I think that still gives you room for further sell off. But I still think that's going to be anchored into a duration premium. I think that's still going to feed through into a higher 10 year, higher 30 year. So while we might be long fives, I think I continue to look at, at something like fives, 30 steepeners. There's still a long term issue. There's still a lot more supply coming through this market, as you point out, than what we have typically seen. And I think that will continue to weigh on the long end, but at the short end of the curve and really in that two, four, five year area of that's still a spot where the Fed has has told us, and Powell even reiterated yesterday, that they're going to be going very slow. And specifically asked about QE and rates, he continued to point out that they need to not just get inflation to 2%, we need to have this overshoot, and it needs to be sustainable. And they know reopening is going to give us some inflation, um, but they, they need that to be sustainable. They expect it to fade. And I think that starts to push people back and, and having to wait deep into next year before we really see any changes. Richard, while the market has received some calming medicine from Jay Powell, I wonder about the lessons we've learned about how swiftly the market can move around the rate story. And if you think about, uh, you know, Fed funds and the, the pricing around a rate hike for this year that we've seen just in, in recent weeks and months, we went from 0% a month ago, 2% a week ago to 13% just before Jay Powell was speaking. What does it suggest when eventually we do get an indication that a, a taper or a program is coming or a rate hike will be happening? I mean, you you would start to see that repricing. I think, you know, so just to put out my expectation is we probably will not have the Fed even start to prepare the market for the possibility of tapering until early next year. And I don't think they actually announce it until somewhere around September of next year. And then it would take at least 10 months for that to happen. So, I mean, it's a very long tail. So while I think the market was starting to get ahead because it starts to see the vaccine roll out, it starts to see that efficacy. um, I think there's still going to be a very long pause. But once that happens, and even in the interim, we know the market will start to look ahead. So we'll have to be looking later on this year where I think the real risk of that should come. But in the interim, you know, we, we still know that dealers' balance sheets um, can have a difficulty now compared to the past of warehousing a lot of that risks. So I think rather than sort of you know sustained movements and, and things going off, I think it's much more we're still at risk of those those sharp repricings like we've seen a couple of times now um, where you start to see the, those drift back up. But I still think the, the biggest difference and lots of people trying to compare 2013 versus now, I mean, the biggest difference right now is the fiscal issuance that's coming through. And so I'd still look for that term premium side of repricing to be coming through. Um, But at this point, you're just not seeing the repricing on the front end. If that happens, then I would start to get much more uh, conservative in terms of broader risk markets. But if you're not seeing the five and under real rates reprice, that's what's going to help anchor some of that ability to continue to uh, kind of move out the risk curve. And I think that's still what the Fed and other central banks want to try and create. Richard, typically a lot of investors look to the U.S. market as a signaling function, but I wonder whether we might receive some signs from this side of the world. And German bonds in particular closely watched. We've moved uh, fairly significantly in a short period of time, even though we still trade negative on that uh, 10-year German bond. But some are, are watching whether that flips positive at some point and whether that would be the genuine sign of reflation globally. I, I think you are seeing, I mean, the broader long end is moving. You're seeing the same thing in EM, and we've seen MEX reprice and, and whatnot as well, where any of those anchors to a, uh, you know, a higher 10-year rate are moving through. But I think you've already started to see central banks move through. So we saw Lagarde last week starting to talk about how they're closely monitoring the repricing in long-term rates. And again, note, she notes long-term rates as opposed to the broad bits. Uh, we saw the RBA come back in and there. We saw Bank of Canada speaking yesterday. Um, I think we still have further action that, that uh, can be on 
on tap here from the BOE later on the year. So I think you still will see central banks moving in. I think the ECB, while there is certainly a internal debates on the efficacy of QE, and there are certainly members that want to get out sooner rather than later, it still seems like the overwhelming consensus doesn't want to see this sizable of a repricing this soon. And so I still would expect whether that's kind of within the next 15 or 20 basis points. So I think there's still uh, plenty of give we can have. And at this point, you've still seen a significant widening in break-evens. And as long as you're getting that, that's still a signal to most central bankers that the market is taking this in a very pro-risk way. So I think once you start to see a sizable move higher in real rates, which is having a meaningful uh, pullback in, in break-evens and inflation expectations in the market, I think that you Richard? will see the central banks continue to step in and try and support this market and try and put a cap on in terms of how far yields go in the near term. Richard, I see signs of inflation absolutely everywhere that the, the Fed doesn't care about and others don't care about. For instance, corn uh, trading at eight-year highs, copper trading at 10-year highs, but they can ignore those as well because they're not core figures potentially. But but in terms of asset class bubbles, I see asset class bubbles as well. Now, admittedly, mainstream equities, one could make a very good argument on either side of the ledger. But when I see the SPAC debate going on, when I see Bitcoin as well, I see bubbles being created by easy money, by stimulus checks, left, right and centre. Is there a danger that any of these bubbles can actually create a problem for the mainstream markets and the mainstream economy? Well, I think that we definitely need to create that division. Like you said, there's market liquidity and market inflation and asset inflation, and there's real inflation. You you certainly have seen liquidity go into the market. What we aren't seeing is that moving into the real economy and and, turning into real jobs and and getting that real inflation side of things going. So I think that's certainly a feature that we have seen, and it's been exacerbated given the exorbitant amount of liquidity that goes in there. I, I certainly would be concerned in terms of how that gets managed. It certainly creates areas where you can get a buildup and pull back like we've seen over the last few weeks, you know, as we move through sort of, you know, the Reddit stock side of things. Um, It's always difficult, though, to talk to bubbles. This is certainly a period we are going to have to reach a period at some point where the central banks are removing liquidity, where you're going to see some underperformance across, you know, the the broad equity markets, across credit markets, um, as you start to reprice some of these, you know, uh, short term rates back in. It will then come down to how the central banks manage to do it. If we go back to 2013, again, it's really the biggest case study we have to go back and how these things, you know, play out. The central bank and the Fed was very, ineffective at terms of anchoring market expectations. They were very quick to come in and the market itself didn't have a lot of of time to build in. If you compare, for example, a lot of the carry trades that are going on in FX right now, we're not at the same levels that we were back in 2013 in in spite of many multiples of the amounts of liquidity that's in the system. So you could argue so far the market hasn't had that time to build it up, but obviously every month, every quarter that goes by, it continues to build those positions. So I think it does create a challenge for the exit and it's very difficult and, and, you know, probably unlikely to say we're not going to get to that exit without, you know, a few of those uh, volatility moments coming through. But I think it's still difficult to say how much that would then feed through into the, uh, the real economy, because at this point, we're not even seeing the excess liquidity feed through into the real economy. Okay, in any Richard, thank you very much for joining us today. Richard Kelly, head of global strategy, TD Securities. And look at how the Asian markets are responding to what they saw in Wall Street. In the red is what we're witnessing. So it's risk off moves for equity markets. That said, some of the currencies have picked up a little bit of action at three year highs where the Australian dollar has traded at. But you can see a casualty for the market. Uh, the ASX down nine tenths of a percent. Steeper falls coming 
23 for the Chinese market, shedding near on 2%, 3.5 down for the Hong Kong stock market and 1.6 down for Japan. So it is a weaker session playing out on the back of uh, the Wall Street trading day and Jay Powell's commentary to the markets. A quick look at Tesla as we talk about some of the heat coming out of the market. It's in very bit up stocks where you're seeing a lot of that action take place. So when Tesla opened up for the trading session yesterday, it, uh, shares were down more than 7% and fell a little bit more than that before claiming back some of that territory into the finish to fall about 2.1%. But the falls that you witnessed and over the course of this week have been enough to flip the stock negative for the year, now down nearly 1% year to date. That said, it is still one of the most expensive components of the S&P 500, trading at 163 times its 12-month forward earnings. So a little bit of a a drop, as you've witnessed, but uh, not enough to bring its valuation back to what would be considered more normal levels. The tie to Bitcoin has been fascinating. Investors are looking at that uh, investment into the cryptocurrency and saying it could be negative for ESG, uh, given that Elon Musk has been championing uh, many of the uh, auto emission cuts that the electric vehicles can bring. But uh, the way into parking cash into Bitcoin could have those ramifications that you're seeing from the cryptocurrency in terms of the emissions produced. So uh, what we've got on the the trade this morning, it's a slight bounce, but after what has been a two-day sell-off, 5.6% to the upside at this point. And just worth noting that there have been ramifications, as you see, in the selling take place in Tesla because of this link to Bitcoin. It's coming out of some of those big momentum ETFs, some of the real winners on the back of this pandemic. The ARK Innovation ETF, for instance, a lot of investors have been moving to one side. I mean, concerns that they they need to seek some downside protection at this point. But the gyrations continue. I'm sure uh, some investors have seen an entry point as we've had that two-day sell-off. Jeff? Yeah, and I would recommend uh, any of our audience who have access to CNBC Pro, take a look at the piece on there. It uh, reflects some Barclays research where they suggest, surprise, surprise, that Tesla may not actually be trading on its fundamentals. It's a good read. A lot of it is about Reddit and the Reddit uh, uh, board uh, community and what they're doing for Tesla at the moment. But let's refocus on this stimulus package, this uh, relief support plan uh, that is running its way through uh, the US political process. President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus will head to the House later this week as Democrats try to squeeze it through before key benefits expire. The relief package will likely face a Senate vote next week where it faces an uphill battle due to provisions that are unpopular with Republicans, such as a higher minimum wage. Well, US Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer insists the bill can be passed before mid-March. We are on track uh, to get this bill done and get it on the president's desk before the expiration of the enhanced unemployment benefits, which is March 14th. We're going to meet that deadline and it's going to be a robust, strong bill. On the other side of the aisle, the former majority leader Mitch McConnell has signaled his opposition to the bill, continuing to criticise its contents and its size. We think this is dramatically more money than is required at this particular juncture. It also includes a number of things that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, COVID relief. And so it will be controversial.
U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has asked lawmakers to draft legislation to outcompete China. The top Democrat called for a package targeting semiconductors and 5G with the intent to bring a bill to the floor in the spring. Separately, a bipartisan group of senators will reportedly reintroduce a bill aimed at combating Chinese censorship of American and U.S. companies today. Hong Kong will report a record budget deficit this year as the city spends big on pandemic relief. Finance Secretary Paul Chan announced a raft of measures aimed at supporting business and households while confirming the economy contracted by a record 6.1% last year. Hong Kong exchange shares are under pressure after a report the government, though, will increase stamp duty on stock trades in a bid to raise revenue. It was only a fraction, but don't forget this has been one of the, the hot markets to trade stocks uh, so far this year. Extraordinary decline on the shares there. Right, coming up on the show, uh, Hyundai announces a major EV recall just a day after unveiling its new electric car range. More on that after the break. Plus, oh, it's a wonderful podcast today. We're all talking about Jerome Powell and his dovish testimony to lawmakers. Uh, Check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Hyundai shares are trading sharply lower after the carmaker said it's recalling almost 82,000 of its electric vehicles due to potential battery faults. It comes just a day after Hyundai unveiled its latest EV range. And just underline, Sherry, how this is still relatively young technology. That's right. And of course, going back to the recall of the older EV model made by Hyundai Motor. I mean, this is a story that has been sort of a blame game between the automaker Hyundai Motor and the battery supplier LG Chem. Now, both of the stocks are under pressure at this point because of the South Korean government's probe and the verdict that came out this morning talking about how Hyundai Motor needs to recall those models in South Korea as well as globally as well. So LG has been blaming the Hyundai Motors uh, software to upgrade those vehicles is at fault, but Hyundai Motor has been blaming the separators produced by LG Chem. The stock is lower by more than 3.6% at the moment for this auto giant, which said that it will cost the company around 900 million U.S. dollars to carry out these recalls, and it will impact the operation side when it comes to Q4 of 2020 results. Now, There is that financial cause, but obviously, more importantly, as you pointed out, the reputational damage and also really highlight how this is really early stage technology for a lot of companies as well, including Hyundai. And just coming one day after Hyundai Motor actually unveiled its very um, important EV platform and the first model that runs on EV dedicated platform, uh, just yesterday unveiling uh, the 
exterior as well as the interior of Ionic 5. Hyundai is sounding very much aggressive. They want to grab 10% of the global EV sales by the year of 2025, and they're going to start production of these models in South Korea starting next month to hit markets like South Korea as well as Europe in the first half of this year and to eventually hit markets like the United States and other regions in the second half of this year. But of course, uh, this kind of Kona recall sort of coming back to haunt the day after when investors were supposed to digest uh, what kind of uh, model Ionic 5 will be forward and uh, sort of daunting news, especially when a lot of analysts were talking about how this Ionic 5 EV platform will be potentially a valuation re-rating story for Hyundai Motor as well as its uh, Motor Group family stocks as well. So we certainly see that negative uh, reaction when it comes to Hyundai Motor shares as well as its sister brand, Kia Motor, as well as uh, some of the parts makers across the board. Guys? Sherry, thank you very much for bringing us the update. Well, Tesla rival Lucid Motors has announced a reverse merger with SPAC CCIV in a bid to go public. The deal is the largest SPAC transaction in the EV space. Leslie Picker has more. Churchill Capital 4, or CCIV, making it official with Lucid on Monday night after months of investor anticipation. Uh, So why didn't the market share this on. Part of it is disappointment in the way that this deal was structured. To finance the merger, CCIV tapped a $2.5 billion private placement at $15 a share. That's nearly 74% below the closing price of CCIV on Monday, making the new investment quite dilutive to those who already owned the stock. While shares plummeted after the news was announced, CCIV has received an onslaught of retail investor attention in recent months. Uh, That helped bid up the shares by nearly 500% through Monday on speculation purely that it would merge with Lucid. Now, the company is led by Peter Rowlinson, Tesla's former chief engineer of the Model S. With Lucid, he's looking to build a luxury EV brand. The deck says that Tesla is, quote, innovative, but not luxury. Lucid says its production for the flagship model is slated to begin in the second half of this year, and the company is projecting more than $2 billion in revenue next year. CCIV, for its part, is the fourth iteration of banker Michael Klein's series of SPACs. The $24 billion merger, if approved, is expected to close in the second quarter of this year, and the ticker at that time will convert to C- from CCIV to LCID. For CNBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.